Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric, and today we're reading short and deep, the bus conductor, from the Paul Mall Magazine, December nineteen oh six. Sometimes this gets a bus dash conductor. Uh, this particular publication is just bus space conductor. Um, this story has many descendants, and it has some antecedents, and it has a lot of influence that mm, probably most people don't know about, but um, E.F. Benson is famous for this story and a, a few others. We've, I think we've done a Benson or two uh, previously. Does that sound right? I don't recall. I think there was one with um, a painting and uh, some blood. <laughs> and a, he's kind of a haunted housey guy. Well, he, he wrote a lot. The Room in the Tower. Oh, that's yes, the that's the one where it's a dream. the family keeps sending him up to that room. Mm-hmm. Yes, that was that it, was fun. It was. And he he is sort of known as a ghosty guy. What's interesting about this one is there's some meta elements to it, which I really dig, and I think are part of the enduring awesomeness. And there's a, a central uh, simile that uh, I think is great at encapsulating what um, good fiction does, and also specifically good science fiction does. Um, but it's a bit too long for us to read, but uh, you have a solution for that. Well, I'm going to try. I'll just sort of read bits and, and, and uh, ad-lib bridges between them. Thank you. Okay? Mm-hmm. Sure. The Bus Conductor by E.F. Benson. My friend Hugh Granger and I had just returned from a Christmas visit in the country where we had been staying in a house of sinister repute, which was supposed to be haunted by ghosts of a peculiarly fearsome and truculent sort. Then follows a description rife with all of the tropes we would expect, uh, forest, howling winds, uh, old roofs, uh, leaking tall uh, windows, clattering, and so on. The lighthearted family, finally with whom we stayed, meaning in that house, insisted on telling ghost stories in the evening to encourage the ghosts, so they said, and give a more Christmas feel to the wet and windy weather. So Hugh Granger, um, on that evening, they they listen to the stories and so on, and and they're talking, and Hugh says now, absent the family, to the narrator, "Um, Why, of course I like to be frightened, I said. I'm sorry, this is the narrator. I want to be made to creep and creep and creep. Fear is the most absorbing and luxurious of emotions. One forgets all else if one is afraid. Well, the fact that neither of us saw anything, you said, confirms what I've always believed. And what have you always believed? That these phenomena are purely objective, not subjective, and that one state of mind has nothing to do with the perception that perceives them, nor have circumstances or surroundings anything to do with them either. In other words, what you, Granger, is arguing is that there really are such things says ghosts and if you don't see them you don't see them but he gives a theory about ghost seeing i want to tell you quite shortly my theory about ghost seeing 
and I can explain it best by a simile, an image. Imagine then that you and I and everybody in the world are like a person whose eye is directly opposite a little tiny hole in a sheet of cardboard, which is continually shifting and revolving and moving about back to back with that sheet of cardboard is another, which also by laws of its own is in perpetual but independent motion. In it too, there is another hole. And when fortuitously, it would seem, these two holes, the one through which we are always looking and the other in the spirit plane, come opposite one another, we see through and then only do the sights and sounds of the spiritual world become visible or audible to us. With most people, those holes never come opposite each other during their life. But at the hour of death, they do. And then they remain stationary. That, I fancy is how we pass over. And then he goes on that clairvoyance, mediums, and such like are people with whom the alignment happens much more often. He talks about all of this, and then we find ourselves uh, moving on to uh, a story that Hugh Granger wants to tell our narrator about a time when, for him, this man who believes that ghosts are only objective actually saw a ghost. Go on, please, and slowly, he says to you, Granger. Brevity may be the soul of wit, but it is the ruin of storytelling. I want to hear when and where and how it all was and what you had had for lunch and where you had dined and what you began. It was the 24th of June, just 18 months ago, he said. And he tells a story about having visited the narrator in London, you who has a place outside the city. He comes in and he's put up in the fellows, the narrator's home, in a room that overlooks the, uh, the street. The narrator has his own things to do, but you goes out to a party, comes home late, doesn't want to disturb his host, um, find some letters waiting for him. They require immediate uh, reply. He sits down and writes answers. He goes out and posts them. He comes back, goes up, and goes to sleep. The room is clammy, but he doesn't feel like opening all the windows. Somehow he awakens, and he notices that it's 11.30, which doesn't seem at all possible because... In fact, he so much had happened in that night, but 11.30. And he looks out in the street, and there is what, bit by bit, we come to understand through his detailed description is a hearse. Empty. Empty. And he looks down at that hearse, and there is a man there, riding, uh, a driver with a horse-drawn hearse. And he looks up. And he sees his face, quite distinctive, drawn, a mole with a hair on his left cheek. He's wearing clothing which is uh, not befitting to that of a hearse driver. Um, he was, in fact, something that looked like a bus conductor, which the narrator recognizes immediately. And he looks up and says, just room for one inside, sir, he said. Well, Hugh Granger reports that he absolutely was not going to go down. Um, this was so strange. There was something wonderfully straightforward and prosaic in all this, uh, the narrator says, having heard the story. 
Here were no Jacobean houses, oak paneled and surrounded by weeping pine trees. And somehow the very absence of suitable surroundings made the story more impressive. But a moment, uh, uh, but uh, for a moment, a doubt assailed me. Don't tell me it was all a dream, I said. I don't know whether it was or not. I can only say that I believe myself to have been wide awake. In any case, the rest of the story is odd. And then Hugh Granger tells the rest of the story. Exactly a month afterwards, I was in London again, but only for the day. And when he's there for the day, he sees a bus come by. And there is the conductor. And it's the same man. As he stands before the bus, just room for one inside, sir, he said. At that, a sort of panic, terror took possession of me. And I, no, I gesticulated wildly with my arms and cried, no, no. But at that moment, I was living not in the hour that was then passing, but in that hour which had passed a month ago, when I had leaned from the window of your bedroom here just before the dawn broke. At this moment, too, I knew that my spy hole had been opposite the spy hole into the spiritual world. What I had seen there had some significance now being fulfilled beyond the significance of the trivial happenings of today and tomorrow, the powers of which we know so little were visibly working before me. And I stood there on the pavement, shaking and trembling. I was opposite the post office at the corner, and just as the bus started, my eye fell on the clock in the window there. And I knew then what half past 11 it had been, which was recorded by my watch on that 24th of June. It was the half past 11 that was passing at this moment. Perhaps I need not tell you the rest, for you probably conjecture it, since you will not have forgotten what happened at the corner of Sloan Square at the end of July, the summer before last. Instantly, the bus pulled out from the pavement into the street in order to get round a van that was standing in front of it. At that moment, there came down the King's Road a big motor going at a hideously dangerous It crashed full into the bus, burrowing into it as a gimlet burrows into a board, making matchwood and other things of it. He paused. And that's my story, he said. You can see why it's, I mean, everyone should read it. um, And we will have the PDF, including the illustrations from the original. There's a other versions online and some of them are a little bit abridged but you can see why this story has some gravitas to it and i think it's largely in the way it's 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 set up so that we come to understand through this simile as he calls it um and (laughs) there's a phrase the very absence of suitable surroundings So he's setting us up for a Christmas ghost story. This is published in the December 1906 issue of the Pall Mall. It's about Christmas ghost stories. They had just visited there. And yet, um, the story itself takes place on June 24th, 18 months prior to the time of the story that we're hearing it. And it's interesting to me that uh, June 24th is the exact opposite in terms of the calendar of Christmas, right? December 24th, or Christmas Eve, where these ghost stories would be told. 
so he's doing something very very fun here and that phrase the suitable surroundings i think that that's a reference to a very famous uh, ambrose beer story um called the suitable surroundings which is about um <laughs> some kids who uh, are going to read a ghost story um but they need to find the most suitable place to do it and that that is the same setup at the beginning where they had just come from a very suitable place to hear ghost stories where the house had noisy wind blowing and making the chimneys whistle and do all sorts of strange things and gloomy forest all around and they just heard some ghost stories and yet nothing happened right and so we have uh, a kind of engagement with an ongoing sort of thread of uh, and genre of ghost stories um there's even a little fun bit in here about um indigestion oh maybe that's the other story we're doing today there's a, a bit about indigestion made me think about um uh the uh charles dickens famous uh i guess the most famous uh, christmas carol where he says it's just an undigested bit of beef right um mm-hmm. the the idea that we've got um all the perfect setup for a ghost story. And, and yet he says, that's not really what it is. It isn't subjective. Ghosts are real. It's just, we don't engage with them very often because it's like we have a piece of cardboard with a tiny little hole in it. And that cardboard's moving around and uh, across the veil, there's another piece of cardboard and it also has a hole and it has its own orbits and its own movements and yes, some people like psychics have bigger holes, so they encounter the uh, ability to see through the cardboard veil um, more often. But let me just tell you about the weird situation that happened to me. In fact, it happened in your house, my friend. This very room that you so much use for yourself. You had told me your servant was ill. And so I was concluding that the hearse I saw was your way of hiding the fact that your servant had died from me. And then you remember that terrible, terrible bus accident that happened? Wow, he just scared the crap out of his friend, right? <laughs> <laughs> like, like that's why it ends the way it does, which is, and that's my story, he said. Like, there's no reaction from the friend. Granger scares the crap out of him, and and I guess we're supposed to think the friend is Benson. I, I think that uh, there are a number of ways in which we, we we ought to be able to praise this story. One of them is this, as you say, it's a meta story. It's a story about telling ghost stories. Mm-hmm. It's a story about telling Christmas Eve stories. Mm-hmm. Um, it also, for those in the know is a story about the genre of Christmas Eve stories. Mm -hmm. Um, The Turn of the Screw by Henry James, published in 1898, an incredibly famous Christmas Eve ghost story. Mm -hmm. It begins with someone in front of the fire. Um, It's a group of people at a summer home, at at a country home, Mm -hmm. and they all agree that the next night they will come down and tell each other a ghost story. 
and in honor of Christmas. And the next night, a fellow begins, and he tells the story which most of us remember as the turn of the screw. Mm -hmm. Most of us forget that it's, in fact, a front-framed story. Mm -hmm. And when we get to the end of the turn of the screw, a story which, for those who know it, is one in which we can't tell for sure if there are ghosts or those are just hallucinations in the mind of of the the governess, who is the, mm-hmm. the main character, as might be the attraction to her, um, for her by her employer. Mm-hmm. Again, that's for sure only in her mind. Um, we, we don't know if the ghosts exist or not at the end, and it just ends. We never get the back frame. Mm-hmm. So Benson is doing structurally exactly what the very famous story by James had done just eight years earlier. He is setting us up for Christmas Eve. He's deciding to tell a story later. He's giving the story, and the story is its unclear if it ever happened, and it never comes to an end. So what he's done is taken James's structure and said, let's think about why we have this. What is it we're trying to do? He is, in fact, James is telling a very powerful story about the relationship between perception and reality. Uh, Benson is telling a story that asks us to ask, why are stories so crucial to our understanding the relationship between stories and imagination and reality? And I think in addition to these ways of looking at a genre, you know, we can look at other things that are brought in here. I mean, why is it that there are Christmas stories for um, ghosts? Uh, one doesn't tend to think about it. We just knows that there is. But Christmas is a very important time. It's mm-hmm. the opposite of death, right? We have the birth, the birth. Um, in that last few bits in this story, it, the car, crashed full into the bus, burrowing into it as a gimlet burrows into a board, making matchwood and other things of it. Mm. Now, there are two things about that. He paused, and that's my story. He said, well, we don't know whether that's his story that is his report or that's my story. I'm trying to scare you and making this up. Right? We don't know any of that. Yeah. Right. That that's left for us to decide, which is so wonderful on Benson's part. But the idea that we're left to decide is right there with and other things of it. Well, those must be gory body parts. Yeah. Meat is the right? word which, that came to mind for me because matchwood and meat. Exactly. But look at how that matchwood, uh, it's made into matchwood, but it was a board. What kind of a board gets turned into matchwood? Pine. Mm -hmm. That's what we use. It's a soft box. You got it. It's a pine box. And how is it that it burrows into it? I would have thought that when a car jammed into a bus, there would have been the meeting of two flat surfaces. But instead, we're told that it burrows into it as a gimlet burrows into a board. A gimlet is a handheld tool that looks kind of like a cross between a drill and an awl. It's for making pinholes. So what we're being told here is that Mm. it is, in fact, as Hugh Granger has said, at the moment of death, those holes line up. And we get to see the spirit world. 
if we recognize that this is in fact not like a gimlet in the physical contact of the bus and the car, but rather like a gimlet in that it opens the crack um, into the world, the, the pinhole into the spiritual world, what Benson is trying to suggest to us is, indeed, there are such things as ghosts, or maybe not. That's my story. Mm. And so there's layer upon layer of this asking us here at the Christmas issue of the Paul Mall magazine, do you really want to be scared? Do you really like that creep and creep and creep? Does it really drive everything else out of your mind? And if so, what is it that you need driven out of your mind for which this terrible feeling is actually desirable? My guess is at Christmas time, it's your own mortality because it is, after all, the longest night of the year. It's interesting. Um, the The association with Christmas and ghost stories is sp- specifically very British. It's a thing that is done in North America, but not to the same extent. And you see that with with the most famous I mentioned earlier, Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. Um, but in the UK, they would turn these stories into television shows and movies for television and every year there would be a christmas special they really 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 reinforced it but just taking the literary uh turn there's an american who who takes up this mantle and he does the exact same thing uh with his story called cool air and this is hp lovecraft he starts um this is a story uh, not a ghost story exactly although there's some uh, dead people talking in it. <laughs> um, well, it starts like this. Dead. Yeah. <laughs> sort of dead. Um, you, uh, this is the narrator. You ask me to explain why I am afraid of a draft of cool air, why I shiver more than others upon entering a cold room, and seem nauseated and repelled when the chill of evening creeps through the heat of mid-autumn day. There are those who say I respond to cold as others do to a bad odor, and I am the last to deny that impression. Well, I, what, I do, what I will do is relate the most horrible circumstance I have ever encountered and leave it to you to judge whether or not this forms a suitable explanation for my peculiarity. And then this is the part that gets me in, in my memory. It is a mistake to fancy that horror is associated inextricably with darkness, silence, and solitude. I found it in the glare of mid-afternoon, in the clangor of a metropolis, and in the teeming midst of a shabby and commonplace rooming house with a prosaic landlady and two stalwart men at my side. So this is a story of uh, a hot summer day where Mm -hmm. uh, the most horrible ghostly circumstances you can possibly imagine, except it's not really a ghost, um, are brought forth in a noisy city, not in a remote country house with the wind howling in the middle of a storm and a reputation for death all around. This is a prosaic, um, commonplace, non-scary spot, a place where you're surrounded by uh, emergency services and other people to verify your impressions. Um, so Lovecraft is taking up the idea of, look, ghost stories don't only have to be uh, set in old haunted houses. Um, in fact, we've read those stories. 
So, we can put them in very prosaic, very commonplace, very um, non-subjectively scary places, and still scare the crap out of ourselves. (laughs) 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 With these, uh, is it a true story or not? Stories. I think there's a little bit here... um the psychology of roller coasters. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if anyone believed that the roller coaster were genuinely unsafe, they wouldn't ride it. They they want the feeling of being imperiled, mm-hmm. but they want the sure knowledge that they are not. I think the same thing is true for these, uh, the wonderful feeling of creep, creep, creep. Mm. Uh, how wonderful is this emotion of fright in a text? It's not, after all, that you open the Pall Mall Gazette and suddenly a poltergeist leaps out from the pages <laughs> and grabs you by the throat. So the very fact of reading puts one at a distance from what it is that is being reported. Mm-hmm. In the case of the, of Cool Air, and in the case of one of Turn of the Screw, and in the case of um, the, the Room in the Tower, and in the case of the, this story, um, The Bus Conductor, we have further distancing between the person who wants to get to have this roller coaster fright and what's actually being reported because we've come away from the home where they were telling stories um and now granger tells his own theory about such things and then granger tells the story that had happened to him previously so these are nested stories Mm -hmm. we are in fact protected by layers of transmission from the actual horrible thing now, as you say, the Christmas Carol is perhaps the most famous of these Christmas horror stories or scary stories, ghost stories. But listen how it begins. Marley was dead to begin with. <laughs> there is no doubt whatever about that. Your laughter is perfect, Jesse. <laughs> Dickens doesn't use that nested structure that James and Benson and Lovecraft use. Mm-hmm. But he uses humor. Right. From the very first sentence, we know that there is a kind of ironic distance between the reader and what's going on. Mm-hmm. So it, in fact, is it not at all surprising that the intervention of these ghosts in the life of the main character, and in fact in the lives of all the characters, leads to something good, something positive. That is, it's the Holy Ghost. There is something at Christmas which is also there of a ghostly nature, which is for mankind. And when the bus conductor says, room for one more inside, sir. Oh, yeah. He's saying, we can conduct you to the next world, but the choice is yours. And I've given you enough of an advance warning that you don't have to do it prematurely. I think that just like a roller coaster, the fright of these ghost stories is one that is not actually pushing aside other emotions because we are afraid. It's one that has a complete emotion because fear is encapsulated in the pleasure of knowing that we have done this to ourselves safely. Yes. 
it's amazing how something that looks like such a simple story can represent something so needed in in the human psyche. And that's why, even when simply put, there's always more to say. Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio.